Coming up next, the bucketing talks about the lion, the witch, and what, Brandon? The wardrobe. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> Welcome to the booking. That little teaser at the beginning made it sound like this was going to be a very fashion conscious episode. The way Brandon said, "The, the wardrobe, write it, write it." Okay, not my finest moment. Oh man! Welcome to the booking, guys. We're going to get right into it. Lion, the witch, and the wardrobe. My name is Nathan Robertson. I'm your humble and obedient host. That's Brandon Chastine over there. He's a scholar who's a baller of reading. We've got uh, Brandon. How do you sound? Uh, what am I? What you're just supposed to say something so people know what you. Sound oh, like. this is my voice, people. <laughs> this is your voice, people. Okay, <laughs> and that's Jake. He's the pastor who's a master of reading. Jake, how do you sound? Like so. Like so. Okay, great. Let's talk about the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. Let's do this now. Does anybody have any Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe specific baggage they uh, want to talk about going into this reading of Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe? It made the clearest impression on me when I first read these books. Yeah. Yeah. This one and The Magician's Nephew are the ones that had the images stick with me the longest. What, what were some of the images that stuck with you? The lamppost, the fawn. <laughs> oh, okay. All the images. The beavers. Yeah. The white witch and the, especially the Turkish delight for some reason. I was always trying to figure out what Turkish delight was. And then when I finally had Turkish delight for the first time. It's disgusting, right? I was very disappointed and wondered why anybody would be. I mean, I think if someone, if I was in the woods and a white witch Rode up to me and offered me Turkish delight of all things. I would know she was an enemy. Now, to be fair, Edmund asks for it. Right. So he gets what he asks for. Right. But any did you have any baggage for lying the witch in the, the, the wardrobe? Spe- it's specific? what I gave last time. Read it in third grade. My third grade teacher, Mrs. Woodall's class, and got me started down the Narnia path and loved it. And my baggage for this book is that from an early age, I thought it was lame. Of all the Narnia books, I think it was the one that I resented the most, the earliest, because it had this lame central allegory. And I just, I, we'll talk about how, whether, whether and how I feel about that now. But as a kid, I just learned to be cynical about that pretty early. And I learned it from J.R.R. Tolkien, because I read somewhere that he didn't like Narnia because of the allegory. And then I read that little preface that he wrote that's included in most modern editions of Lord of the Rings, where he says, I cordially dislike allegory and hate it when I detect it in all its forms or something like that. That's a phrase that's always stuck in my mind from Tolkien. And I was just like, I want to be cool like Tolkien. And I realized like a lot of times I didn't like allegory. And I know like it's, you know, Jesus taught an allegory. It's not totally a bad thing. But when it's like... (laughs) (laughs) characterize my critics as the dumbest people in the world (laughs) i know dumb people think something but i can think smart thing definitely the way they sound (laughs) i know people will say things that are not my opinion and they'll sound like this (laughs) 
<laughs> no, listen. I know. <laughs> I know there's good allegory out, but I don't know. Like when it, you're reading Pilgrim's Progress, there's a lot of great stuff in Pilgrim's Progress. But when you get to like, and then Hopeful walked into Castle Despair. It's just like, I don't like that kind of stuff. I just think it's corny. I've never. When the allegories, you know what's good about the allegory in the Bible? It's not too on the nose. Like it's a farmer went and did farmer things that make sense for a farmer. And they just happen to correspond to these transcendent truths, if I may use the phrase. We theologians call that typology. Typology, yes. It's, it's superior to allegory. Right. I like that. I, don't, I like typology, I guess. I don't like it when it's mystery. Like, I had to read a bunch of stuff. You know what it was? In sixth grade, we read this. I went to a Christian school, and they made us read this dumb book called The Shining Sword. And it was about how, like, a guy found the, the shining sword of truth, and he fought the giant of sin. And, and then I read some Frank Peretti, and there was, like, a sin dragon and the sin dragon. And I was like, oh, this cool Stephen King-style book suddenly ended with a sin dragon. And so it's not that allegory can't be done well. It's just that a bunch of the worst Christian writers use it in the cheapest, lamest way. The shack? Yeah, like the shack. To use an extreme example. Sorry, I was starting to go down a rabbit hole, but I have stopped myself. <laughs> and most of the Narnia books, as a kid and indeed now, don't offend me with their obvious allegory. But this one, with the central resurrection thing, as a kid, pretty, I mean, by sixth grade at the very early, or at the very latest. Really bothered you? It just seemed cheesy. Like, And the problem that, the, the, maybe I'm too much of a literalist in some ways, but I always overthought it you know it's like well, the theology of aslan's death doesn't actually work out in a way that corresponds and i don't know whether that's c.s lewis being stupid or c.s lewis well lewis not caring he, or he saw it yeah break yeah, in? Please, Sorry. please 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 um and i'm not sure this means much but and it could have been his reaction kind of like sour grapes to tolkien for having criticized the allegory in the first place but he had this literary category he came up with calling called supposal Mm-hmm. Literature, have you heard this? <laughs> no, but that sounds no. like something he'd come up with. I think it's with I think it's in his book that he wrote on like it started with the light post or something. Mm-hmm. This was an essay that he wrote about the creation of Narnia. And he says that it's it's not supposed to be allegory because what he's wanting to do, like he was doing with Paralandra, is he wanted to say, suppose there was another world and suppose it also had sin and had to have the same sort of redemptive act that our world had. What would it look like in that world? Would it look exactly the same as ours? Mm-hmm. And so he says, given an a-, a world full of where Greek myths and talking animals, like it's, it's, it's a world where he, his childhood imagination of boxing can come to life and right. mix with his love of paganism. So you have dryads and all that stuff, talking animals, right. all that stuff <laughs> in this world. And so he's saying, what would it look like for them to have a need for a savior? Well, let's play suppose then, Brandon. So, the, but he, so he called this supposal. <laughs> supposal literature as opposed to allegory. And I'm not quite sure there's much of a difference. (laughs) Well, let's suppose there was a land where there was sin and people had to die for this sin. Uh Whose wrath would they be appeasing? The white witches or the emperor over the sea? Because I think if the emperor over the sea, let's suppose that he's kind of like God. Let's suppose. suppose. (laughs) And let's suppose that the white witch is kind of like the devil. Uh-huh. And let's suppose that Aslan is a little bit like Jesus. And let's and, suppose that we are supposed to learn lessons. And, and let's suppose that this one act was actually just to redeem one boy and not everybody who was under the punishment of sin. Right. I mean, yeah. Okay. It starts to bug me because it feels like you can very easily take the wrong lesson. I mean, you could very easily learn from Narnia that 
Jesus died to appease Satan. And is that unfair of me? No, I think that's the unintentional, but his response would be, well, I wasn't trying to write a Christian allegory. Yeah, he'd say, it's just thematic, and this is the redemption and sacrifice, and these are, but it's like, if you weren't trying to write an allegory, oops, (laughs) you you messed up and accidentally wrote an allegory, because it reads an awful lot like an allegory to me. But we love this book. (laughs) No, I do, I do. You just need to drop the pre, I mean, we need to stop thinking of it as an allegory and read it as not an allegory. It's, it's the only way that I can enjoy it. But is that it's fair so to the, bad. I mean, I know C.S. Lewis would say yes, but I don't know that that's fair to the way that most people read the book. Oh no, it's not. And the way that the book is, was actually kind of designed the, to be read. It's not fair to the way that my kids understand the book. Right. Everybody understands. My, my yeah. like I, I read the scene where Aslan sacrifices himself and one of my kids jumps up, exclaims just like he did for us. Yeah. I'm like, nope. <laughs> and then I power right on through. <laughs> and because it's garbage. Uh, sorry, fans of that sort of thing, but. It is garbage. It really is. It really yeah. is garbage. And here's, here's the other thing, like even thinking in this sort of supposal way mm. really does undermine the re- the biblical reality. Listen, this may come as a yeah. shocker to you guys, but Jesus is man forever now. When he took on human flesh, he took it on forever. In heaven, now, Jesus stands as a man and he returns as a man, the God-man. He is the God-man forever. That's kind of a big deal that is central to understanding our redemption. And, and so to have Aslan blithely say, well, I have different forms in your world. It's Yeah, that's that's heresy. That's what it is. I mean, Unless you're not supposed to take it that seriously. Right, which is why... Yeah. The only way to take these books is to not dialogue. And that's part of the problem with The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe is that it pulls so close and people want. Well, every. But the fact is, there are lots and lots and lots and lots of stories with, you know, redemptive sacrifice, hashtag redemptive sacrifice, sacrifice. being at the the heart of them. Problem is that he really did give us a, a God. Yeah, I think it's just inexplicably or inextricably theological what he did it feels like if it if it just got a couple steps farther away it'd be fine i don't mind stories where people sacrifice themselves or where heroes better than people sacrifice themselves i think there's all kinds of ways to talk about sacrifice and redemption blood guilt and Mm. all these things in a story and i think that is the business of stories often is to deal with these themes these are the central themes that give meaning to our lives this is what we have to deal with this is our redemption. And so, of course, we're going to work this out in our stories and our myths and our pop entertainment. But when you actually have a Jesus figure doing something, it just gets too close. I don't I don't know where the line is exactly. I just want to say C.S. Lewis crosses it. Mm-hmm. I'm sorry to that our fun celebration of Narnia every episode has to start with something negative. I promise I like the rest of the books and I like this one, too. There's just, a lot to like. Let's rip the Band-Aid off first, though. It's probably worth mentioning somewhere in these podcasts that my two oldest children's names are Peter and Lucy. One of my daughters' name is Lucy. And P- Peter wasn't necessarily for Peter Pevensey, but Lucy kind of was. Well, and that's the kind of example of the thing that C.S. Lewis does so right. And it's not straight allegory. It's just good character writing. Like, Lucy's the kind of girl you'd want to name your daughter after, right? Yeah, Absolutely. She's, she's sweet kind of and she's trusting and she's real and she sticks to her guns when all of her siblings don't believe her and something happened. And she gets angry, but then she 
just comes around and well, and I like it when C.S. Lewis, we're going to talk about this next time, I guess, but like in in Prince Caspian, when he does the little allegory, the little lessons, I generally like those. When it's like Aslan's like, follow me, but I will be invisible. I think that's a pretty good metaphor, I guess, for some things that we've all been through. Uh, you mm-hmm. can take it, get, if you take it too the literally. The older you get, the bigger I get. Right. He's not a tame lion. Okay, that's a helpful. I, everybody likes to use that one on social media and stuff, but hey, it's a helpful little just totally helpful yeah there's a reason it gets a lot of play yeah and it's because it's great and mr beaver's incredulity at them thinking that he would be uh, he's a lion he's a lion he's not safe there we go there we were just every single evangelical podcast ever mm-hmm. yeah are you happy there we go let's spend it <laughs> are you not entertained <laughs> are you not edified brandon's just left the building <laughs> that was my car door slamming <laughs> Oh man! Well, what did you guys like about this book? I've to, that's, there's look, that's the main. There's gonna, I think yeah. when we get to the last battle, there's going to be some other major things, and and there might be a few minor things along the way where it's just like he got that wrong, and it hewed too close to yeah real theological. It was so close. It was close enough that the fact that it didn't actually do it is damaging. Yeah, you know what I mean. But most of the time, yeah. When you have a book that tries to pretend it's not allegory, right. then at least needs to have some reasons to think it's not allegory. Right. So like when J.R.R. Tolkien got upset that everybody assumed The Lord of the Rings was an allegory. Allegory for the Great War, right? Allegory for the Great War, or even an allegory for Christianity, which mm-hmm. you still have the people Christian trying- life, right? right? Yeah, you still have people who try to make that argument. Boo. He gets so frustrated by that because he says, no, it's just because I take Christian principles to actually be at the heart of reality. And so the stories I tell- are going to have, they're going to be Christian stories. And I, you know, Gandalf's sacrifice and him coming back, there's no reason to think that he's trying to make the claim that Gandalf is Jesus. Right. Right. But having Aslan be the son of the emperor over the sea, coming and dying for a sin, Mm -hmm. and then being resurrected while two girls watch his Because his deeper magic that is from before the dawn of time that flies in the face of this devil creature. I mean- I'm sure that there are people out there and we'll probably get all sorts of heat on certain platforms for me saying this because I'm sure they think that I'm misunderstanding Lewis or something. I've always thought that his supposal theory mm-hmm. was one of the most disappointing and weak literary philosophies he ever had. Mm-hmm. I just thought it was a moment of weakness in someone who was usually a brilliant literary critic. And I thought it was just him trying to make an excuse because I think he was embarrassed by Tolkien's not liking the story. Right. I think he was embarrassed that Tolkien didn't like the allegory. Well, let me say this. If Lewis never, I hope this doesn't sound condescending. I don't think it will. But <laughs> if Lewis had never existed, I'm not sure that I would know that I didn't like this. In other words, somebody had to try to assault the Citadel. And I can see why C.S. Lewis thought it was a good idea. You know, if I was in Lewis's shoes, I might think, hey, let me try to do what Bunyan did, but do it one better and do it for kids and incorporate all this fantasy stuff, you know, from mythology that I like. It seems like a good idea. With Lewis, and I'm sure if we ever were to do Paralandra, we could talk about this more. But with Lewis, I think he mixes things and feels free to do things with fantasy and Christianity that are almost, that verge on blasphemy. Is that... Going too far? I don't. I don't think I mean, it is. That's with "Till We Have Faces" is what we saw with the end of that book. Is it really felt like it was getting close to blasphemy? Right. Talking about things and doing things that just aren't our place to do. And so, the supposal theory where we suppose what I mean, 
it's just, it seems like something that is not literature's place to do, to be supposing what would happen if the gospel story took place somewhere else. Well, the fact is God put man on earth and the gospel story took place here. It's not going to take place anywhere else. And if it did, it would look like here. Right. Yeah, it's referencing what what you were saying last episode about Calvin, right? Calvin's just going to be like, hey, here's an idea. Shut up. Yeah. yeah. Who Stop. cares, who cares what it would look like in yeah. a different world? That's not for you to know. Yeah. yeah. How how could you know? And you know, and he might even quote Lewis where he says, it's not for you to know the things that could have been. Yeah. Or whatever that line is. Yep. And so, yeah, it means we don't get Paralandra, but I think that the world's not worse off for that. There's, there's the, by the way, Jake just quoted Lewis. There's probably not a point that we'll make criticizing Lewis that Lewis didn't say better than we did. <laughs> exactly. <somewhere. laughs> oh, exa- yeah. He says a lot of this. He actually says in Mere Christianity, I think it's when he's talking about free will, that there's a point at which you have to say, this isn't for me to know. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> and I'm like, wow, <laughs> only you had extrapolated that to the rest of some of your fiction. Yeah, but let me just say, I think it makes sense to me why, given his time, given his place, given who he was, why he might want to try to do some of these things. And it's very clear to us on the other side of it, what didn't work and what was blasphemous about it. I'm not convinced that it would be clear to any of us if we were on the other side of it, if we were, you know, if we were approaching it, why it would necessarily be bad. It might seem like a project worth undertaking, Paralanda, Narnia, Lion the Witch specifically, these these mm-hmm. kinds of allegories. It's easy to see why it doesn't work. Why it, when, it, when you come that close to the truth, you begin to be in danger of degrading the truth somehow. It's easy to see that once someone's done it and failed. I'm not convinced that if I was C.S. Lewis, I would do better or I would know better without trying it. Yeah. So I think we can have, we can't necessarily have sympathy for all the places where Lewis just decided to be obstinately wrong, but I think we can have sympathy for the attempt, the seeming like a cool idea. Yeah, you know? it is a cool idea. And, and and you have, when you have forebears like Bunyan, who did such good work in the field of, of allegory, you can't, you can't blame somebody for wanting to be the modern. Now he would say, of course, that he wasn't the modern Bunyan, but I mean, come on, these books are allegory, especially this one. Yeah, this is an allegory. This is an allegory. Yeah. <laughs> you can call it supposal. You can call it whatever, you want, <laughs> whatever you want to call it. Now, let's talk about some things that we like about this yeah, book. Yeah, let's do that. <laughs> what do we like about this book? Uh, well, we already started touching on some of it. Mm-hmm. Uh, the characters are great. Well, Edmund's whole art yeah. is really great mm-hmm. and really helpful. I mean, there are lots of different arcs that are fun to follow, but- I think that Edmund's arc is sort of the heart of the story. You know, he's tempted by forbidden food. Mm-hmm. He falls because of forbidden food. Right. Not allegorical at all. Right. I'm sure. <laughs> <clears throat> it's supposal. <laughs> <laughs> Suppose but someone was tempted by forbidden food. What's great about that story is we we all know that feeling of lusting after something that's going to kill you and make you sick and being willing to lie to yourself in order to get it and being willing understands. to walk yourself through the wilderness the wilderness ice and snow with no coat on to your own death willfully because you want the thing yep yep to walk right into the arms of the enemy and to betray the people that you love and that love you best because you want the thing right that badly that's how desperately wicked you are and to need to be saved from that. Yep. To be hopelessly beyond I, your I, own power to conquer your own lust and to be a slave of the devil as she drives you on in her hatred of God and everything else and to have it 
require God to act on your behalf and to put himself between you and your sin. I mean, that's the weakness of this book and it's the strength of it. Yeah. And the the just the fact that the Turkish delight ends up being dry bread and water. Yep. It's a perfect metaphor. I mean, what I'm thinking of, and I'm sure a lot of our male listeners are thinking of, are times in my life where, you know, when I was a young man and I really wanted pornography and I was willing to pay money for it. I was willing to go to places, dangerous places where people might observe me that had the computer access that I needed. I was willing to do all, all these things to put things, myself yeah. in real danger of losing jobs, of losing friends, of losing status or position or money or whatever else. Yep. Because I wanted this thing and I felt like I just had to have it. And then when I got it, it wasn't it nearly, you, sick. you know, it made me sick. It was yeah. disgusting and I hated myself and it was dry bread at best. You know, the, the, the pleasure was not, the pleasure of it was not the pleasure that I expected. Yeah. Not to mention the poison of it. Lewis gets to mix two things that he's strong at, understanding human psychology. Yeah, which he's a master and of. And imagery, mm-hmm. which he's always very good at picking the right mm-hmm. metaphor. I can't really think of any time he's used a metaphor that I thought, well, that's kind of stupid. No, his, he's a perfect he's good at that. metaphor yeah. titian. <laughs> Unfortunately, that never really, yes. <laughs> Unfortunately, that never really expanded into him being a good poet. <laughs> Poetry's pretty bad, man. Yep. Sorry, people. I, I, I don't think a lot of people have read C.S. Lewis's poetry, but uh, let's just, I'll just go on record saying, I've saved everybody the time. I've read C.S. Lewis's poetry. <laughs> yep. Don't do it. <laughs> <laughs> don't do it. It's dry bread and water. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, and so his characterizations, Lucy is great. Lucy is Edmund's awesome. great. Those are his two strongest characters in this book. But even Mr. Tumnus and the Beavers. Oh, yeah. All these characters are wonderful. They're all very yeah. neatly drawn, well drawn, yeah. and they're little tiny places. And when you think about how short a story this actually is, something that you really could read in a nice long sitting. Mm-hmm. You know. uh, not even that long. I read Prince Caspian in two or three hours. Yeah, I did the same. Yeah. It, you care. You love the beavers. You care about Mister Tumnus. You, right. have, you know you're invested in Lucy and Edmund and and Peter, a little less in in Susan, mm-hmm. but but she it, gets her come up. <laughs> yeah, for being a boring character, <laughs> she does. Yeah, and he's good at description. That is one thing he's also very strong at. I think he's always been yeah. underrated because I've heard people say, well, he wasn't good at that. And it's not that he wasn't good at it. It's that sometimes he people didn't have said that. want to be or he didn't try that well, I'm hard. I'm going to be controversial here. He's better than Tolkien at it. Oh, Tolkien can be really boring, frankly Tolkien's speaking. boring. When he gets into, especially in the Fellowship of the Ring, when he's just getting started. Mm-hmm. Oh, it's boring. It just, it's so boring. It's like he has to describe yeah. absolutely everything and it's like man we're on this like great big grand quest but we have to describe mr whoever's field mundane yeah. detail yeah. of the journey and it and it doesn't help it doesn't do work that i think is particularly great but i think in these books this is always giving you that sort of uh hemingway-esque little detail that tells. here or there that tells that gives you just enough that you fill in the rest with your imagination as the story keeps moving forward. That's what you want. An author, that's what I want in an author. Is just give me the little, give me the detail that tells, that sparks my imagination to fill in the rest of the details and keep the story moving. Right. And I, man, he's really good at that. But if I was going to compare the two, I would say L- Tolkien was a better visionary. Lewis, oh. Lewis, I mean, a million times. Lewis was a better purveyor of his smaller. Yeah. So, Lou- yeah, no, this is, a, I mean, 
when it comes to vision and world building and all that sort of thing, Tolkien's unmatched. Oh yeah, but it's like Tolkien Narnia is a very small, childish. Yeah, it's not sort trying of, for it, it much. It is a very small, childish sort of world. It's right. not aspiring to be more than that, though. It stays within itself, and within itself, it works. It really works. It's really great. Yeah, I'm looking at the passage where he first introduces Mr. Tumnus, and that's brief to the point, but everything he tells you, like oh, well, uh, the umbrella, but also what with the parcels in the snow, it looked just as if he had been doing his Christmas shopping. Mm-hmm. Yep. It's just like a perfect little- With his little scarf. Yeah, and, detail yeah. that you needed. He's also really great at describing food. Yes. Yep. Like all the, he likes to do that, yeah. Yeah. All those British They're, guys do. I mean, a lot of this, it's a lot like the wind in the, the willows beavers. in yeah. that way. Right. But- well, that's why it's like, it's one of those things where if you ever eat anything that's described, you're like, oh, great fish, right. great, great toast and jam, great Turkish yeah. delight. It's kind of gross, but everything you want to try everything, it's got that yeah. tactile, like, mm, I want to try this. Yeah. yeah. So there's that kind of sitting around the hearth storytelling quality to this, which is great. It's, a, it's I think, the biggest stylistic strength of the story. Well, and it, it, what's striking to me is it really is the iceberg theory that we always talk about with people like Hemingway, where he chooses the detail that tells and then lets your imagination and your mind fill in a lot. And what was striking to me was seeing this book in the cold light of a day as a cynical adult. I was able to look at it and see how little it really does, yeah. but then be all the more impressed by it does the right things and it does it in them in such a way that it enables my child, it enabled my childish imagination to make such a world out of this. Absolutely. It's like the world, the world itself, like literally the world, the places that they go, it's so small. It's, it's really Mr. Thomas's house, then it's the beavers, then Edmund and, and walks to the witch's house. you can walk everywhere in a day or in a day and a half. You can walk all of Narnia in like two days. Right, and, and it's like four locations that the book takes place yeah. in. It's really uninspiring and unepic if the you witch, think about the it. The witch can get to the beaver's house from her castle in 15 minutes. Yeah, the wolves bearing down. It's like um, if they'd left two minutes later, they would have been killed because that's how easy it is. Yeah, for... I mean, like that timing is like that timetable is literally in the book for you. And the witch like, and the bad guys, they know who the beavers are. Like they right. know who Tumnus is. This is a small It's a very tiny world. world. It feels like a children's, a world that kids would come up with. You know, it feels like it has a little bit of that boxing element in it. It's like, oh, well, Absolutely. only the four things that are needed to prop up this story actually exist and everybody yep. knows everybody. And yet- it doesn't feel like that at all to a kid because it's no. got all these details that do the right amount of work so that you imagine this vast, wonderful Narnia. Yeah. Narnia, that in actuality is about the size of the 100-acre wood. Yep. And it's things like Mr. Tumnus telling stories about naiads and dryads and stuff. It's little things like that that can just trigger your imagination and make the world feel big, Yeah, even though Lewis doesn't give you a big world actually it was surprising to me going back given how big and vast and complete and filled out narnia feels to me as a thing how little i mean it's kind of like you see a movie with a western town or something and it feels like a complete town full of bustle and life and then the camera pulls back and you see the that it's just you know we see like behind the scenes things where it's just facades that are pop propped up and there's not actually the full town and there's you know there's actually not much to the illusion as an adult i was able to see there wasn't much to the illusion but that's not a criticism that's a that's the highest praise i think because he figured out how to do so much without without doing much of anything it's kind of the same thing we talked about last episode with his nonfiction. he always knew what details to choose and what details to leave out this is kind of an aside yeah. but um one thing that actually does help as well are the illustrations are pretty great these little illustrations that he has throughout mm-hmm. i don't know if your volumes have the yeah pictures. they all have 
Yeah, the little black and white color. But yeah. I know that there are differences within the American and the British editions, but this this lady Pauline Baines who illustrated it, mm-hmm. um, apparently he found her from Tolkien. She had uh, illustrated Sir Giles of Ham, Sir right. F- uh, Farmer Giles of Ham. Did you know that? But she's good. She's great. He actually there's a letter that he wrote when he won the Caldecott for was it the silver chair that he won it? I for? think it was. Yeah. He said that he thinks it's half and half for both of them. Mm-hmm. that her illustrations help just as much as hmm. his writing. And in the British editions, like I think there's, they cut out like 20 to 30 when they put in the American edition for whatever reason. Huh. They got a lot more illustrations than we did. Huh. Huh. And there are like um, editions they put out recently, I think that they have like the old grainy image because it, it's really hard to find those original illustrations now. Right. But yeah, I'm sure it would be a different experience of the book. It reminds me of how, we all think of Sherlock Holmes a certain way, not because Doyle described him that way, but because the guy that illustrated the Strand magazine put him in a deerstalker and had him look. And it's like our, our whole image, the iconography of Holmes comes as much from some random illustrator whose name I don't even know as it does from Arthur Conan Doyle. Yeah. Similarly, a lot of the hominess that we associate with Narnia and just the quaint Britishness and the yeah. a lot of that, it's all in the text, but it's certainly in those illustrations. Yep. They make it feel like more of a fairy tale. I guess that's the way I'd put it. Yes, they do. There are other great little moments, but in uh, the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. But a lot of the, a lot of these books are just that. Like, there's the story, and the story is a vehicle for a lot of really great little moments. Yeah. You know, Peter's got his sort of coming of age. He's he has his first battle. He fights and kills the wolf. It's sort almost an accident. Yep. Like he gets sort of lucky, but it's his first kill, and it becomes Peter Wolfsbane, and he or the sword does, or whichever it is. Yeah, that's I, a, I, it, it may be in mere Christianity. I can't remember where he talks about that, but a lot of virtue comes. It may be in Surprised by Joy. Actually, I'm getting them all mixed up right now. But a lot of the virtue comes in a moment when a man isn't actually thinking, "I'm going to be virtuous now," but it's mm-hmm. just like his character's coming out. Right. It's like yeah. it is who that person is at that moment. Right. The virtue is how you act at that moment. Because it was good to see Peter, the way he handled that. It wasn't like Peter was like saying, I'm going to be a brave king now. He just went into the action. He just realized, it took him a second. Then he realized he had a a thing to do. Other people started to go. Aslan says, no, let's let the young prince win his stripes Mm -hmm. or something like that. And then it kind of happens because he kind of stabs the wolf, but doesn't stab the wolf. But He slashes, the wolf dodges, and then the wolf sort of falls. Because the wolf howls, he gets a... Shot. Right. And I think that's true, especially it's useful for a young child to realize that a lot of the virtue and good things they do in life aren't going to seem all that great mm-hmm. when they actually yeah. happen. You're not going to feel like a king. No, you just feel you nauseous like and what's, stupid. What's and... great is that you come back to it later. They come back to that moment in Caspian and it's like, yeah, that's when I slayed the wolf and it's yeah. when I became Peter Wolfsbane and this is the, and it's not the sword that he used to fight all the other battles with. Mm-hmm. It's not the sword that he used to, it's a sword that he fought this wolf in this really unglorious, but first battle when he saved his sister. Yeah, right. And I just, I love that that's the way that it works because mm-hmm. that's the way life works. Well, yeah, and then he forgets to clean his sword, which is also yeah. how life works. <laughs> like even in the moment of your and greatest really, heroism, it's like, your your fly is undone or something. Yeah, you know? he's like, super embarrassed. Yeah, yeah, you can't. You're lucky if you get one out of a hundred things right when you go to do your great act of of heroism or whatever it is that God calls you to. I, I love that a lot of these, a lot of those types of moments in these stories, 
are really not that epic. Yeah. They're really not like what you want. And I know we'll talk about Caspian next next week, mm-hmm. but what you want is for, you know, when Peter and Edmund and Lucy and Susan, you, you're wondering with everybody else, like what are these people actually going to do? Right. Like what are they going to... And then, oh, Peter's going to fight Miraz in battle, and he's this great king, and he's been breathing the Narnian air, mm-hmm. right? And Miraz is a fat coward. Right. Like, all right, Peter's just going to like whip him up real quick. No, it's, it's no, going to go. And, Miraz is a lot bigger. Miraz yeah. is bigger, and Miraz crushes his shoulder, and and Peter thinks he's going to die. Like Peter's like in the court, like they agree to a break, and Peter's like, he's going to get the best of me. If here, he gets me, Edmund, then make sure to tell Lucy yeah. that I love her, and yeah. you know, and tell <laughs> Bunkin is a brick or whatever. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah Trumpkin. Tell, tell, tell Trump to circle Bunkin. He's a brick. <laughs> <laughs> Say something especially nice to Trumpkin, or what? Yeah, yeah whatever yeah. that is. <laughs> yeah, but it's just like you know, it's just not. I, uh, I love that sort of thing. It's not overly. He doesn't romanticize. Yeah, he doesn't romanticize the battles. Yep. He doesn't romanticize. And you know, okay, he, he went. To, he was in World War One, and he volunteered. And he also doesn't like make it unromantic. He's not cynical about it. No, I think he does. He gives it the right amount of reality. He understands that those kinds of things are work. Yeah, basically, exactly. and it's hard work, and it can make you nauseous sometimes. But you get it done, and, and you, you feel might good die. about it, and you might die. But you get those moments, like we'll talk about in Caspian, where he whops the guy's legs off, and then he yes. gets, gets his head <laughs> he with does, the backstroke, yeah. which was always the coolest moment <laughs> when I was a kid. <laughs> poor guy. Yeah. Like he's going toe to toe with Mraz, and then you've got these guys yeah. that are like, "Yeah, we'll usurp the thing," and you know. That's it. Yeah, it's like, whap, whap. You're done, dude. Yeah. <laughs> what happens to the other one? Do we even know? We, we don't even find out. I assume he died. Yeah. But the other thing that I really appreciate about these books, and it really st- struck true for me as a kid, because as a kid, even coming from not the best home in the world, in my case, in, in terms of discipline and all those kings, but you're constantly be t- being told one way or another, if you go to school or anything, that you're doing things wrong. And authority figures are the scary people that tell you what you're doing wrong. And the ones that love you do it for your benefit. And people like Lewis just innately understand that. And so you have all kinds of moments where the kids get something wrong or they get corrected. Yeah. You have Lucy saying, I'm sure, or Susan maybe saying, I'm sure I'd be really brave. And, and St. Nick saying, yeah, but you're not supposed to fight. So please don't. And you have Aslan saying, must more people die for Edmund? And Lucy's just... She's a good kid, but she was selfish in that moment, and she felt like a jerk. Yeah, and that's what Harry Potter lacks. Never gets that's right. what that's that's what that's, that's right. that is the essential thing that Rowling did not understand. All all our criticism of Dumbledore, I think, can be boiled down to Dumbledore was never allowed to actually be an authority figure that brought any kind of gravitas or discipline. Yeah, to and Harry, that's, that is what is most lovable actually about Aslan. It's not the romps and the playing. No, that stuff's it's, all kind of goofy in my it's mind. It's what, when he's Mufasa disciplining Simba. Yeah. yeah. And they all, all those lions, <laughs> right. they, they, they do a good job of really hitting that note of fear and anxiety and shame and yeah. love. Right. And tenderness. And all it takes sometimes is a look from Aslan to to shame. Or sometimes it takes the discipline that we don't get to see, like what happens with Edmund. Yeah, we nobody ever but gets we to know what it. was said to Edmund. Yeah. 
Also, nobody never needs to ask. All all we yeah. need to know is that Edmund was never the same again. And right. It's pretty cool. And yeah, I, yeah love that's, that. I love that. Yeah, and it's, by the way, Lewis so many times is so clever about getting away with not having to write the, yeah. <laughs> the awesome <laughs> the thing. Yes, yeah. yes, yes. <laughs> he, like, he makes it better by avoiding it. Like he finds ways to do that all the time. It's really, really enviable the way that he can right. get around yeah. that sort of thing. Or the way that even, again, with Caspian, right? Like, hey, I don't have to have any of these people kill Mraz. Right. I don't have to, I can stack the odds against them I can create this, he creates this whole scenario where, you know, we're going to have a face-to-face combat. It's all going to work out so that the, all of this happens and nobody's going to actually be guilty of shedding Mraz's blood and it's going to feel totally natural and, and inevitable. Yeah. And it's going to tell about Mraz and it's going to tell about the people he surrounds himself with and it's going to tell about Caspian and it's going to tell about Peter and it's going to... It's brilliant, yeah. You know, and... It's sleight of hand. It's a lot of sleight of hand. Yeah, He's a master of sleight of hand and the way that he constructs his plots and these stories. And it's like what we tried to teach in the essays, structure, 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 structure. Absolutely. Absolutely. Like his essays and his plots are masterfully structured. Well, and you know, you always, we always hear people complain about this or that movie or TV show or book being manipulative or being contrived. All art is manipulative. All art is contrived. You just don't want them to catch you doing it. Exactly. And so it's like, yeah, Lewis probably thought, well, I can't really have any of the heroes kill Mraz. That'll be a little rough for kids, and I can't really. Who's going to do it? If we have Peter kill Mraz, then it, it's fine. Uh, I can. Uh, I could probably make that work. If um, Caspian was killing his uncle, then there's got to be drama about that. Well, yeah. But if I have him be betrayed, and I have it set up, you know, if I can do it in a way. Well, and it's pretty blatant manipulation and contrivance, right? It's like, well, let's just create some guys who are just bad in exactly the <laughs> exactly. most useful way to do a plot thing. <laughs> it's very like these guys were created for a plot point. Yeah. In no way does Mraz ever go to single combat right. with Peter. Yeah. Right. In no way does that, in no world does that ever happen unless you have people who exist for the plot. Right doing plot things. Right. In no way does either of those guys manage to get out of that situation without one of them being killed by the other unless somebody falls, there's some confusion. Right. That has to, and somebody jumps in pretending to check on the king all for plot reasons. Right. And so how do you disguise that? I think you disguise it with detail that's rich and relatable. Exactly. So friggin... Jumping the gut a little bit on Caspian here, but the way that those guys talk, just their old timey idioms and the way that they, it's very specific. It doesn't just feel like these guys were contrived just for a point because they're using these idioms that Lewis liked, these medieval idioms in the yeah, way, it's, yeah. it's, it's just the way that they talk and the yeah, way actually, that the guy says, that's for whatever his line he says before he stabs Mraz in the neck. Yeah. It, it feels like a, a line that is not any, not just a contrivance would say, but that a specific kind of a guy would say. And so you do it with these little details that bring these things to life yeah. and make them feel like not. It, it reminded me of um, he got to be Shakespearean there. Yes, it was very Shakespearean. So Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. I keep pulling us into Caspian. Yeah, we'll talk about that next week, but more. But yeah, so I really like, and this is all through Lewis. The moments where the children are disciplined. As a kid, you relate to that mm-hmm. because all the good authority figures and many of the bad ones in your life discipline you one way or another, and so. 
it's something that happens. It's something that's relatable. You feel shame with the kids. It's the kind of dumb thing you, it just, it really anchors you in the reality of the world. I think actually, I think it's good yeah. world building like mm-hmm. Aslan and these Kings and the tutors and all those kinds of characters, St. Nick, whatever he's called, Father Christmas, it gives them the gravitas of actual authority figures and it makes the kids believable kids because they mess up. They do stupid things. They forget to clean their sword. They want to be better warriors than they should be. You know, all these things are very relatable. It's just like one of the most memorable moments from Lord of the Rings is Pippin throwing a rock down a well and, again, I'm saying fool of a took next time throw yourself down and it's like <laughs> okay was that authority crossing a line there and being a little harsh yeah have good authority figures that i love in my life in their discipline of me crossed a line like that and it's been hurtful and helpful at the same time yes it's very relatable yeah right yeah. so I, I i just i really appreciate those moments and they're all through narnia we'll hit more of them as we go i can remember more they really stuck with me for whatever reason and i really think that they are the thing that's missing from Rawling. Yeah, absolutely. Dumbledore if, would have been a much more. Man, that's what the movies tried. Those to do. books. Yeah, I think they yeah, did. If those books had had even just a couple moments, it would have man, those stories would be they would rock. If if Dumbledore had ever just once, if there was like one famous moment where Dumbledore just just read, there at the end of the Order of the Phoenix. Yeah, that, that's where it should have yeah. been exactly. If he would have just taken Harry to the woodshed. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> at the end of Order to the Order of the Phoenix, that is what separates Harry Potter from great literature. <laughs> I mean, from Narnia or or even Tolkien, at least in terms of. I mean, we can talk about world building. We can talk about all kinds of things, but in terms of moral weight. And I think moral weight equals emotional weight equals how we feel about the stories equals the resonance that the stories will continue to have. If Rowling, I don't know, if she just had the moral vision for the discipline and betterment of Harry in a way that made sense to the way that real life works, then those books would be much better than they are. And they're mm-hmm. not, they ain't bad. Yeah, they ain't bad at all. But I don't know. It's also you appreciate that about Lewis is soft and kind of, you know, Brandon, I think last episode was describing him as being a little effeminate sometimes in his argument. Lewis could be that way. He could be very twee, very classic effeminate British man kind of person. But as a scholar from a certain era, as a tutor from a certain era, as a student from a certain era, as a child from a certain era, he understood the value of discipline. Absolutely. He yep. just he just understood it innately and he put lots of moments like that into his books and they really they really sell that we're dealing with real children. I I'm, I know I'm just saying the same things, but to me it's one of the the best things about these books and something mm-hmm. that as a kid, I don't think I ever remarked upon it to myself. I don't think I was like it was something that I would have been able to articulate, but I think it meant a lot to me. It really made it really brought the stories to life and it really gave them some moral weight and allowed me to put myself in the position cuz if I'm a hero, you know, I, I would never be like Harry Potter and just stumble into doing everything right. I'd be the kind of guy that would forget to wipe his sword or would want to do the wrong thing or would tell Aslan something stupid. And then Aslan would be like, you're dumb. Or just stare yep. at you. Yeah. <laughs> or, or just give me a Aslan's grave look. response is <laughs> yeah. just to sort of stare like, really? <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, as, a, as a human being in real life, I'm always getting grave sad, disappointed looks from authority <laughs> figures. Yeah. And so to have a book actually capture that feeling, it's really nice because that's how life is for me, you know? <laughs> it's like, I don't just get authority figures making excuses for me and being happy with me all the time, yeah. you know? Uh, apologizing to you for the time when you got your your godfather killed. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. yeah. By completely 
flouting all authority. Yep. Yeah. And so that's just, that's a really wonderful thing that's built into these books. I'm sorry I made you kill your, get your, your godfather killed by not telling you things that would have encouraged you to obey my simple command to not be an idiot. Right. (laughs) 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 Oh, man. Well, and also I think it gets at the fact that Lewis knew psychology, the psychology of children really well. And I think he could anticipate where kids would mess up and the kinds of feeling like if I'm a girl and Santa Claus gives me a bow and then tells me not to use it, I'm going to be like, uh, what? You know? And so C.S. Lewis, he doesn't make Lucy or is it Susan in that it's moment? Susan. He doesn't make Susan better than that. He makes Susan. Lucy's the one who's like, I could be really brave though. Yes, that's mm-hmm. right. And that's when he says battles are ugly when women fight. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, well, yeah, because he gives her the dagger. That's what it but, is. Yep. Sorry, I'm getting it all mixed up. But yeah, but if I'm Lucy in that moment, of course, it's like, ah, oh, come on. But I can be awesome. I can be awesome. Yeah. And of course, the movies, that's the first thing that went out the window. The women are. Oh, there's all sorts of things that went out the window. I know, but. That... Prince Caspian's even worse with those movies. Is it? I've yeah. never seen Prince Caspian. I haven't either. But yeah, no, yeah, he's great. So that passage, so Peter did not feel very brave indeed. He felt like he was going to be sick. Yes. It's wonderful. Yep. Yeah. And I think, man, every time I've been called on to be brave, especially when I was younger, that's usually how you feel. You don't feel like I'm brave now. But what's glorious about this is it makes you feel like you can actually do it. Mm-hmm. Yes. Right? Like as a kid, you know, I've never had to, I've never been in battle. I've never enlisted. I've never been in war. I've never done those sorts of things. My dad and my grandfather were policemen and my grandfather fought. But, you know, at, especially as a kid, you wonder like, man, would I have what it took in that? Could I, could I do that? Like, how would it be? And when all you have are stories of people being awesome, it's like, well, I, I know that that's not what I've got. But when you have this boy who's like you mm-hmm. feeling sick, but just doing the right thing and sort of by God's grace, getting lucky, like, and that's something you can build on, like, yeah. Hey, I can. This can work out. This is how this can work. Like people have done this sort of thing before. Yeah, it makes it relatable. It makes it achievable. It's the difference between James Bond and Indiana Jones, right? James Bond, everything always goes right. Women throw themselves at him, and if he's trying to do some stunt, it's going to go perfectly, and then he'll adjust his tie and kind of make a twee little quip. Indiana Jones is going to get dirt thrown in his face, and he's going to get dragged behind things, and he'll punch out the Nazi and try and steal his uniform and then the jacket will be too tight. Yeah, and it's just like, yeah. yeah, if I was a hero, that's the kind of stuff that would happen to me. And you know which hero young boys want to be more? Yeah. Well, because James Bond, they, they know Indiana that Jones, they know that you just have to be born to be James Bond. Yeah. But if you're going to be Indiana Jones, all you need is a lot of determination and the will to keep grit. trying no matter yeah. what happens. Some grit and a grad degree. Yeah. And, and James Bond has actually went that direction. Daniel Craig is a pretty boy, but they've made him into more of the kind of character who things don't always go his way. But he's got the determination to see it through to the end. Yeah. Right. But they still have to give him those moments where he's going to, you know, adjust his tie. And it's kind of, there's a little bit of a weird dissonance in Daniel Craig and that he kind of has to rise to those James Bondian silly moments, but they also want him to be more relatable in the Bourne, yeah. I guess what people, what moderns would call the Bourne school of, of action mm-hmm. hero. More like the boring school. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, I like Jason Bourne. So what else do we want to say about the lion, the witch, and the wardrobe? 
Anything else just like stand out to you guys that you really like? I mean, as, as far as the interaction between the real world and the magical world, mm-hmm. the, the wardrobes are really cool. Image that he it's landed really super on. Super mundane, but yeah. Yeah, Prince Caspian, by the way, has the worst of those. They just kind of get sucked back. Yeah, like as a kid, I always enjoyed the transition. It's always like, is it going to be a painting or what's it going to be this time? And Prince Caspian is just like, who cares? Yeah. Uh, It's kind of cool, I guess, in the the meta narrative of the story, but uh, it's not as cool. I don't know. No, I thought it was pretty cool because they're called by the horn. Yeah, that that aspect of it is cool. But in the moment when they just get magicked in, it's like, oh, man. Getting pricked by things. Here's a question that I had in reading this book and coming to it with a more grumpy adult mindset. How big are these animals supposed to be? And do they walk on hind legs or not? <laughs> they do walk on hind legs. And Aslan walks on hind legs? Because sometimes it seems like he does and sometimes it seems like he doesn't. That's some, confusing. Sometimes it's like he put a paw on her shoulder or something and then sometimes I, it's like he bounded around like a traditional lion. I, I think that in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, Aslan- Are we looking tends, at a, a retcon situation here? I think here? we retconned it. I think he walked on hind legs in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe and then he went to four legs- and the rest of them. How about those beavers? How big? In the, illus- in the illustration, beavers. when he is talking to the white witch, he's on his hind legs. Aslan is? Yeah, that yeah. makes sense. Yeah, oh, right there. Yeah, Aslan's not very imposing in that. Yeah. The witch is like way <laughs> taller. He kind of like the cowardly lion. <laughs> yeah, he does. <laughs> but, but then he's on his four legs. That's the other lion. No, but everybody else, I don't think like the bulgy bears do, but I think the beavers walk on their hind legs, I think. And are they human size? Reepicheep is described as walking on his hind legs. Yes, Reepicheep well, does. Well, we know that they're bigger because in Prince in, Caspian, in Caspian, Reepicheep's like two or three feet tall. Right. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. In Caspian, he kind of clears this up. He says talking animals are bigger, exactly. but yeah. they're still not yeah. human size necessarily. So the beaver's yeah. house was big enough that they could fit in it. Presumably, the beaver, beavers are like. But you're not going to find a two or three foot tall mouse. Right. Running around. That right. would be so terrifying. Terrifying. Yeah. Would be. <laughs> crawling on your wall man i guess that would be a possum yeah that would just be a possum right which is in fact there. terrifying possums are scary yeah yeah brandon you look like a man with another thought about the lion the witch in the wardrobe do i <laughs> what do you think i want to know what you think about this professor character the oh, professor I, character. I loved him as a kid yeah i think that well he's it's fun when you find out later that he is degree degree Right, so he has this relation, but um, yeah, I think I had a similar, mm-hmm. not as a kid, right. I didn't have that relationship. He seemed like one of those mysterious authority figures that you should listen to, and that the first time you really see that is when he asked him, well, why don't you believe Lucy? And then he had that one- line. Logic. Yeah, it's logic. What are they teaching these yeah. schools? The three possibilities. That that little paradigm has actually been helpful in my life. I've thought about yeah, that. Yeah, but where he says, but also- Lucy's lying. Exactly. Lucy's telling the truth or Lucy's crazy. And now let's think about Edmund and- <laughs> what's what's the he, mo- Who's the, the most likely to be telling the truth? Yes, that's, that who's was the, the most helpful. Who's the most likely to be lying? Does she seem mad? Mm-hmm. Hmm. Logically- Sounds like you should just simply be believing her. Yeah, I can't think of a specific example, certainly not one that I could say on mic, but I think that that, that little uh, thought experiment has come in pretty handy for me in my life before. Jesus was a liar? Mm-hmm. He was telling the truth or he was a madman? There's also that, yes. But yeah, it's particularly what he said there about, well, who do you know has a history of lying? Is it Lucy or is it Edmund? Mm-hmm. That just was a very helpful way of being very cool and calm and collected about even analyzing hum- human motives. Right. Well, um, and by the just way- Just because it seems impossible. Can I yeah. just say that moment when Edwin 
spitefully decides not to support oh, Lucy. Yeah. That's an ugly moment. It's yep. so true. And it's life. really painful, but it's also you know where Edmund's coming from if you're aware of your own sin at all. Like yep. you hate Edmund in that moment, but I think you get it. Yeah. Also, like yeah, let's who wants to I mean that's just that's a really adroit psychological insight into what a kid like Edmund would do, why he would do it, and how yep. he would feel about it. Like Lewis just got it. And then how once he's caught, it put him in the doghouse, and then that would further drive him into resentment yeah. and anger. And there's so many nice insights into everything human about sin how he gets driven by he, his own bitterness and and sin. Well, and when he, when he's fantasizing on on his walk to the White Witch's house about how Peter, you know, something not very nice will happen to to my siblings. I'm not. I'm going to tell myself like they're not going to die or anything. Certainly nothing too bad, but. It's just like, that's the kind of thing I would tell myself if I was like, I'm sure the white, you know, we're not going to kill them, but you know, it's just like right. Lewis understood yep. the kinds of lies you tell yourself and the mm. little places where you make space for your depravity basically yep. really well. Yep. The conversation went somewhere and I was not listening. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> I was reading about the professor. You got more, some more thoughts about that professor? Brian? I don't. I mean, I think that there's a little bit of, he's, I don't know if it's cutesy, but there's a little bit of tongue-in-cheek writing himself in i think with c.s lewis is the professor yeah the guy who has been there and can explain the story to the kids but is also going to preserve the sense of magic to it i don't think it's really wish fulfillment i don't think lewis necessarily sees himself this way no i don't think he does i think you can always tell lewis is one of those writers even in his adult work where you can always tell who he likes and who he doesn't and who you're supposed to like there's never any real question even with the morally compromised characters like edmund there's never any real question about, and I understand that's a feature of children's literature. Yeah. I would say even for Lewis's adult uh, work, it's more of a feature than a bug. But he's not a man that, he's not an author that hides his intent. Prejudice. Yeah, or his prejudice. It's like, this is the, in That Hideous Strength, for example, the, all the bad guys, it's like, these are the kinds of people that C.S. Lewis doesn't like, and he doesn't like them for these reasons. And we know that probably every one of them has a precedent in Lewis's life, somebody that he was wanted to see smashed by an elephant. And he's just like, it, Jane Austen feels the same way. Many great authors, actually, you can feel them working out there. Yeah. In that hideous strength, they are, I think, more composites. Yes. And you maybe even representative of- it's Very specific people that- Or who embody philosophies that he hates. Yes, I think that's true. But Yeah. Uh, anything else to say? Was there yeah. anything you well, guys didn't like about this? Or go ahead. I guess the last thing to say about the professor yeah. is he's kind of, he fulfills the role that has precedent. He's that type of figure that is who Dumbledore is. Mm-hmm. And yet, just well, for one, just the fact that he was telling Susan to mind her own business is probably a world's better than what Dumbledore ever did. Yeah. So that's another example. It's a minor, it's a very minor example, but it's another example of an adult figure <laughs> exerting a little discipline over the proceedings. And it's just yeah, and nice. He has other Dumbledore qualities. He knows things that he doesn't tell the kids. Right. He knows what's going on. He, he drops the him. once a king in Narnia, always a king in Narnia line. Yeah. Right. And so, yeah. I think as far as professors go, he's he's a pretty good addition to the lineage of Literary good professors. professors. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I like him. So, I don't know how much of a lineage there is. Is he the only good one? <laughs> the only good literary professor? I'm sure there's somebody. Ransom is a professor. Yeah. Hmm. C.S. Lewis, I guess. Of linguistics. <laughs> yeah, professor. Yes, Liz, that's, prejudices, that's for sure. Was there anything you guys didn't like about this book? Well, I think we touched on. I the mean, central. besides besides the main thing, is, is was there any like 
some of the romping and celebrating that yeah. happens right after Aslan comes back to life. Yeah. You know, you let just... me defend that a little bit. It's just, it's so much easier to write about sin and depravity and to be in touch with that part of yourself than it is to write about joy. I could maybe forgive an author. I agree with you. It's really ham-fisted a lot of the times when Lewis tries to describe romping and celebration and stuff. He's not great at it, but yeah. it is a tricky thing to do. I at least It comes across as weird. Yes, it does. That this is the first thing they do when they see that he's back. They all just start jumping Let's around. Let's have and, a romp. Yeah. It's like that. Shall we have a romp? It's like that yeah. horrible Peter Jackson scene in Lord of the Rings where Frodo's been rescued by the eagles and he wakes up and then suddenly there's all this creepy slow motion of, ah, 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 and they're all, <laughs> get down. <laughs> get down. And it's just like so over the top. And <laughs> like, please stop. <laughs> it's like close ups of the actors burying their teeth. And you can see all of Ian McKellen's dental work and it's like, no. <laughs> Yes, I think we're going to talk about a much more disturbing version of that in Prince Caspian. Oh, yeah, baby. <laughs> but yeah, I agree with you. I thought felt like the book, just as an adult, took a turn for the worse once everything started getting happy. I agree. I think I, did, I got a little bit bored by all the descriptions of spring coming. Like, there's only so much of flowers and birds and stuff I want to read about. Lewis really bit. likes that sort of thing, landscapes to him. Yeah. I also, I mean, I get why they have to suddenly become like Ivanhoe characters when they become king and queen. Yeah. But a little bit of the medieval. My kids <laughs> thought that was hilarious. Yeah. And they did not mind how long that drug on. The, the, they just thought the it white was. The white stag. Yeah. Say it's, my queen. Well, that's interesting. I didn't think concert. of it as being yeah. funny. Yeah. My kids just thought it was okay. hilarious. That's it a, was just like. Do you think Lewis had his tongue in it? Was he like, this is, okay, they became boring adults just like everybody does. Was there a little bit of that to it? Or... I, th- I think that. Absolutely. Yeah. That's fun. I like that. If so, I, I always just assumed that's what it was. Lewis I think they just that became kind of cool. boring, weird adults <laughs> just like well, that were unintelligible to my kids. <laughs> right. And I don't think my kids knew anything to do but to just laugh at how unintelligible it was, unintelligible it was to them when they're all being really convoluted and go. weird. And that, I mean, that's just the way that they took it. It was just like, yeah. no, they're adults. So they're being convoluted and weird. And it's, you know, yeah. but he does that kind of thing with more serious characters like Aurelian and Silver Chair is always saying things like, Thou art a lad of wondrous, quick working wit and stuff. So, well, when we get there, we, we, figure we will it figure out. it out. Yeah, figure but it out. I like, I like, I like, I like I, I reading on this. It I do, yes. Me like a passage that I didn't like as much, a little bit better. If I didn't read that out loud to my kids, I would have skipped it. Yeah. But I, when I hit it and started reading it out loud to the kids and realized how it was hitting them, and maybe I created it or leaned into it, but you in thick cockney yeah. accents. <laughs> <laughs> but, but man, say <laughs> my fair ladies, put the lamp on the post, work it upon me strangely. <laughs> well, if you try to read it out loud, right. I mean, it really is like it's pretty hilarious. I defy you to to read it out loud without without laughing. I had trouble with it. I read it out loud to the incandescent Meredith, and I was just like, By the lion's mane, a strange device, said King Peter, to set a lantern here where the trees cluster so thick about it, and so high above it that if it were lit, it should give light to no man. (laughs) It's pretty funny. (laughs) Sir, Uh, madam, (laughs) madam, said King Peter, therein I pray thee to have me excuse, for never since we four were kings and queens in Narnia have we set our hands to any high matter as battles, quests, feats of arms, acts of justice, and the like. And then given over, but always what we have taken in hand, the same we have achieved. Sister, said Queen Lucy, my my royal brother speaks rightly. And it seems to me 
we should be shamed if for any fearing or foreboding we turn back from That's following so noble a beast as now we have in chase. Like Jim Gaffney. And so say I, <laughs> said King Edmund, and I have such desire to find... That's good stuff. Yeah, it's like Drax the Destroyer. It is like that. that. It's, like, it's, it's that I'm kind of thing. Very slow. <laughs> you know, I think I just thought of a, a piece of textual evidence for Jake's kids' claim that this part is supposed to be intentionally funny. And it's the part in Caspian where Peter recalls to himself how yes. to write a grand kingly letter. <laughs> and Lewis is obviously having a little fun with yeah. the portentous yeah. kingliness of it all. So there's at least one other section where we we have some pretty obvious intentional fun with that kind of thing. So, hey, yeah, there's some evidence for the Jake's theory. I like it. There we go. All right. Problem solved. Yeah. How many lampposts out of seven do you give? Two, Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. Six. Six, Six. lampposts? That's what I'm going with, too. I'm going to dock at an extra lamppost for the crummy theology and the obvious allegory. I'm going to put... I'm going to say we'll, we'll do the lamppost theory for every one of these books. Out of seven. So you can be the judge for yourself of whether you think there has to be a seven and there has to be a zero or a one. But I'm going to say that you could do whatever you want with that and that just give it the lamppost you think it deserves. I think this one deserves five lampposts. Whatever, Nathan. You're wrong. <laughs> I think it, I mean, well, you have to. <laughs> did you like that? No, I did like that. <laughs> well, well, you have to, to, listen, if the first book doesn't catch you and draw you into the world, then none of the rest of them live and survive. As a book that, as it stands in a, as, in a, as, a, as an artifact of literary history, I'll give it seven. As somebody that knows these books well and likes some of them better than others, and this one is a fiver for me. It's not one of my faves, but it's good. There's certainly large chunks of it that read like a seven lamppost book, but I'm going to say this is a five because they're all the resurrection yeah. stuff. And you you want to know what planet this is? What is what planet is this? This is Jupiter. Did we ever say that on Mike? There's this. You theory. never explained the theory. Yeah. Oh, there's this theory. That, so Lewis was really into medieval cosmology, mm-hmm. in, in particular the planets, and he even wrote a, a poem called The Planets, where it's based on the medieval cosmology, so people understand that they only had a certain amount of planets, and each planet was then associated with certain characteristics, especially with the Roman and Greek gods. And so there's this guy, uh, and I think he's an Oxford professor, he wrote a dissertation, and then it became a book about how the planets relate Lewis's understanding of each of the planets actually relate to each of the Narnia books. And so you have the Sun, Mercury, Venus, Earth, Mars, Jupiter, and Saturn. Each represent, each one of the books represents one of those planets. And this one represents Jupiter. And Prince why? Ka- well, you want me to tell you why? Yes. I can tell you the exact reason. I thought why. you'd never ask. <laughs> I thought you'd never <laughs> ask, Jake. Do you want me to read the section on Jupiter in his poem? No. Okay, fine. Go ahead. You can get a taste for how bad his poetry is. Yeah, well, let's do it. Let me see also known as Jove. So the qualities that Jove has, or Jupiter, is kingliness, magnanimity, festal joy, tragic uh, splendor, and summertime tranquility. And you can see some of that, I mean, the feasting and the joy that comes through in the Chronicles of Narnia, the romping they do. It is Jove's Jove's orbit, filled and festal, faster turning with arc ampler. From the isles of ten Tyrian traders and troubles steering came with his cargoes the Cornish treasure that his ray ripens. Of wrath ended and woes mended, of winter past and guilt forgiven, and good fortune Jove is master, and of jocund revel, la- laughter of ladies, the lion-hearted. Ooh, that's a big key that mm-hmm. these... So one thing we haven't talked about with Lewis scholars is that you get a certain 
Dan Brown sort of scholar with Lewis. <laughs> yes. That going to well, find all the symbols. Yeah. And, and the so they can't and... imagine that a scholar so learned as Lewis could possibly have just written children's stories. Mm-hmm. And so they have to imagine that he filled them with something else. Right. And that there are puzzles for them to solve, <laughs> like a Da Vinci painting. <laughs> <laughs> and so they'll go through here and then. I mean, there are reasons to think that they, there are good reasons to think that these were fundamental parts of the way he saw the world and mm-hmm. that he really loved the planets and astronomy. And so, yeah, I'm sure that these things he enjoyed would come out in his works, but they really go to town here. Like the Lionhearted, right? That's, sure. that's the key right there. Mm-hmm. That's what unlocked this whole poem for this guy, I think, who wrote this book. The myriad-minded, men like the gods, helps and heroes, helms of nations just and gentle are Jove's children. Work his wonders. On his white forehead, calm and kingly, no care darkens nor wrath wrinkles. And we're going to stop there because it keeps going. Um, <laughs> so, yeah. I liked your reasoning there. <laughs> it keeps going. Ergo, so, we will, will stop. stop. <laughs> and I bet you guys, cliffhanger. Yes. For this part of the podcast, this okay. is really fascinating. Um, I bet you guys cannot guess which planet Prince Caspian is. Uh, oh, boy. I'm not going to tell you. Is it a lot of fighting? There's a lot of fighting. Oh, okay. Mars, well, maybe. <laughs> All right, guys, we got to do donor shout outs. We didn't do it last week. So here we go. We never I'll do my about... donor shout outs in Elfish. All right. Should we do a kind of a backwards? Elvish. We never gave one of the pr- contexts we promised that we never did. <laughs> yeah, what was that? Was that we never av- actually gave any context for his writing in the Chronicles of Narnia. Yeah, we'll get to that next episode. <laughs> <laughs> Prince Caspian, we'll start out with that. All right. Hey, uh, I'll go between you guys. You do whatever you want for this. Just put it in Elvish, whatever you want to do. Uh, say it with a Scottish accent. Okay, there we go. <laughs> Doesn't like your Johnny Depp. I don't care what you do. Robert and Ron to the lovebirds, Brandon. Robert and Ron to the lovebirds. The artful Anthony Dodger. The artful Anthony Dodger. That's what he's going to do. <laughs> little Anthony's Cigar Store. Good. It's little Anthony's Cigar Store. <laughs> the immortal Chelsea E. The immortal Chelsea E. Jimmy Beam and little Annie Oakley. Jimmy Beam and little Annie Oakley. Lily of the Valley. Lily of the Valley. Andrew and Esther the lovebirds. Andrew and Esther the lovebirds. <laughs> the inscrutable Jenny Z. The inscrutable Jenny Z. The Keith Master. The Keith Master. Dave's Mighty Men Trucking. Davis might have been trucking. John and Jill and Little Baby Max. John and Jill and Little Baby Max. Jay and Katie were cold and love cheese and also love C.S. Lewis and... Including Till We Have Including Faces. Till We Have Faces. Jay and Jay Katie. Jay and Katie you who are, are mostly cold correct. and love cheese and who also love C.S. Lewis, including Till We Have Faces. My beloved mother, Beth. Nathan's beloved mother, Beth. Console Prime Blue has changed his name. <laughs> I think he, <laughs> he was tired of us being confused about <laughs> Console Prime Blue, which was his username on Patreon. But his actual name is Adam. Oh. <laughs> so Adam needs a new nickname. I will call him. I don't know. What's a good nickname for Adam? <laughs> Adam the Renegade. Console Prime Blue. That's <laughs> Console Prime Console Adam. Console Prime Adam. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. <laughs> Console Prime Adam. Console Prime Adam. Sound like a Star Wars character. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I liked Console Prime Blue. Galactic Princess Emily, of course. Galactic Princess Emily, of course. Fletcher the Wobedraggled Wizard of Yore. Fletcher the Wobedraggled Wizard of Yore. Jer- Jeremy the Dark Hooded Lord of Death. Jeremy the Dark Hooded Lord of Death. Na- <laughs> Nathan, not me. Nathan, not Nathan. The Incandescent Meredith. The Incandescent Meredith. Ma. Maya! Maya! 
Ryan the Red Avenger and Judith of the Ladies of Justice. Ryan the Red Avenger and Judith of the Ladies of Justice? <laughs> Danny the Dude. Danny the Dude. <laughs> DJ Sammy G. DJ Sammy G. Wicka, wicka, wicka. Benny and Dana Tiberius. Benny and Dana Tiberius. Eric and Catherine the Lovebirds. Eric and Catherine the Lovebirds. Professor and Lady X. Professor and Lady X. And a happy booking welcome oh. to, I'm going to say, Dylan, the death-dealing warrior of doom. Mm. Dylan, the death-dealing warrior of doom. He deals death. Nice. <laughs> like poker? Like Yeah, like poker. <laughs> <laughs> hey, welcome, welcome to the... Welcome to the Donor Shoutout family, Dylan. It's a good place to be. It's a yeah. good place to be, you death-dealing warrior of doom. Maybe yeah. it should be a D-word of doom. A Dealer is what you said, actually. Death. Yeah, but he's a death. I said death-dealing. Oh, we'll, wait. we'll just say, let me just simplify it to death-dealer of doom. The death-dealer of doom. I like oh, that. That's pretty awesome. Yeah. Dylan, the death dealer of doom. The death dealer of doom. Mm, there's the next Marvel character. There's the next. I'd watch the Dylan, the death dealer of doom yeah. world or uh, movie. Yeah. Uh, all right, folks. We'll be back next week for PC. Bye. Bye. Book of the Day was written and produced by me uh, and the fellas and Brandon and Jake and stuff. And thank you and support us on patreon.com forward slash the booking. Bye.